evening. Marianne O'Brien Malkin was and remains the greatest donor that Rare Book School has had in its 25-year-old history. And indeed, she was our greatest donor before uh, her bequest after her death in 2006 when she left us half of her residual estate, a figure that will come out to about $800,000. This lecture is in her memory and in the memory of her husband, Saul M. Malkin. Together, they ran a weekly periodical called A.B. Bookman's Weekly that during the period when they ran it was read literally by everybody in positions comparable to the ones that you hold in this room, whether as collectors or as dealers or as binders or conservators or as librarians or academics, everybody with an interest in the physical book read A.B. and indeed subscribed to it. Three Quarters of the Magazine was profoundly unreadable. <laughs> it was lists of books wanted for sale that dealers put in because they had customers who wanted a particular book. And in the dark ages before bookfinder.com, if you needed an out-of-print book, you found a local dealer who said he might be able to find a copy for you. And the dealer would advertise the need for the book in AB, and dealers everywhere would read the wanted lists and quote the inquiring dealer if the book was available and for how much. And the inquiring dealer would collect all the postcards that had the quotes and pick one that seemed good and present it to the person in need of the book for whatever price the quoter presented it times two or three, <laughs> which is quite reasonable, uh, especially for a five or ten dollar book. The system was the backbone of used in cheaper antiquarian books in this country for nearly 50 years. And the Malkins had the good fortune to sell the magazine in 1972. <laughs> and it looked as if it was, as those of you who were here last night, it looked at the time as stable as the New York Central Railroad did. <laughs> AB lasted fading in its last decade until 1999. So many of you uh, will remember it and many of you will have, as it were, inherited subscriptions to it from your predecessors and perhaps wondered what it was that you were reading it for. It chronicled in its front matter because it was a magazine and to be a magazine it had to have a sufficient amount of editorial copy. It chronicled the doings of rare books in this country with a comprehensiveness which no other periodical before or since has ever done. It had 10, 20 pages on the annual pre-conference of our BMS, for example, and indeed we're discovering as we come into the 50th anniversary of the rare books pre-conference that it is the only adequate record that we have of those pre-conferences in other than a simple list sort of way. Marianne reinvented herself on a number of occasions during her lifetime. Her husband died in 1986. He could not attend the first Malkin lecture, which was in December 1985, given by Michael Winship, an old friend, although he was pleased by the fact that Columbia had a lecture in his honor. He died uh, four months after that first lecture in March of 1986. And Marianne sailed on, became a pretty considerable collector in her own right. She collected what she called chicken tracks. They were books of dance notation. And indeed, the 18th century ones do indeed look rather like chicken tracks. Uh, Marianne Malkin was not afraid to spend $50,000 on a book in the 1980s, so you can imagine the pleasure she had in putting on her little old lady act at the New York Book Fair to people who did not realize that her checkbook was a very deep one. 
She bequeathed uh, her collection, gave some of it during her lifetime, and bequeathed the rest of her collection to her alma mater, Penn State. She was a great lady in many ways. Many of the members of this audience have their own fond stories about Marianne Malkin. I was saying to somebody yesterday that I miss her all the time. She was a very, very skillful little old lady indeed, who was never a bother and who did not believe in self-pity or complaint and who had a good memory and used it to advantage and who was very kind to all of us. She said before she died that she didn't mind if it became the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien lecture and Marianne O'Brien Malkin lecture, and so it is. Richard Cookta has uh, spoken at this podium on a number of occasions. It's a great pleasure, and a particular pleasure, in fact, to welcome him to give the 2008 Malkin Lecture. Thank you, Terry. Um, I'm sorry about the drama of the title. That's not totally intended. I'd like to think of more sort of reflections. Let's go to the first necessary strategies. Um, This list isn't exhaustive. Um, It's simply a short list of things I think about and think are vitally important to our collective future. Um, There are probably 20 people in this audience, Barbara Shaler, Alice Schreier, Nicholas Barker, who could um, have their own list. Some of the points might overlap, but the point is we're all thinking about this. We're all sort of on the stage together. And we're all sort of planning in what directions our institutions are going to go and hopefully collectively have some impact on the Red Book community. These are my talking points tonight. And I thought I would put them right out front to start with. And I'm going to go through these and give you some reflections, some ideas, some thoughts. And I'm going to finish with some challenges, which is another way of saying things that worry me. But let's start off with resources. And of course, I'm going to start off with collections. And I think if I've learned one thing over the last uh, 15 years at the Folgers, that endowment support is critical. In 1970, these are some interesting interesting numbers. In 1970, the Folgers spent $100,000 a year in collection development. Ten years later, in 1980, we spent $110,000 a year. Those are pre-endowment days. The 80s, some of our restricted endowments started to, uh, started to be established. And the Eric Weinman Librarian at the Folger Shakespeare Library, Mr. Weinman established the first acquisitions endowment. By 1990, that number had doubled, so we're spending about $200,000 a year. I came to the Folger in 1994 and felt we were barely competing. We now have 26 acquisitions endowments, but the yield on those endowments over the last five years, six years, eight years, has really not been enough to be competitive. In 2000, we're spending about $430,000 a year. About 430, double what we were doing in, in, uh, in 1990. And then in 2008, this year, we spent $775,000. And it's largely because of restricted endowments for acquisitions. Over and above the operating budget, money that is targeted exclusively, expressly, and solely for collection development. I don't know if it sounds like a lot of money to you or not. I've been acutely aware of how little money $770,000 is in today's market. Over the last 18 months, I've been working with a wonderful man. His name is Paul Ruxin. He's the chairman of the board, chairman of the board of governors of the Folger Shakespeare Library now. When Paul took over office as the chairman of the board, one of the things that really concerned him was the amount of material we were missing on the market. So we spent about a year, 14 months, keeping records of the kinds of things that we were bidding on and losing, the kinds of things that were just impossible for us to get the kinds of things that we're, we could only dream about. Well, the result of that is just recently, last May, the board approved a $500,000 increase for acquisitions. 
So we're going from $775,000 to $1.3 million next year, this year, now, fiscal year 09. Over the course of three years to 2011, we're going to be at $4.5 million. Significant increase. So we're going from $770,000, $775,000, over three years we'll be at $4.5 million devoted to collection development. It's a major increase. It took 18 months to do it. But I'm very proud of the Folger for having the will and very thankful for Paul as the chairman of the board for putting those resources and making those resources available. What this means is that we're trying to position ourselves to be more competitive, to face, to face market trends like a 25% buyer's premium in the auction world. What's happening in the auction world is extraordinary. And I'll talk a little bit about that at the end of my, end of my talk as, as well. 25% buyer's premiums. If you have an agent who does their condition report before you and helps you get export licenses, that's another 10%. So hopefully what we're doing is we're moving from bidding ceilings of ten dollars to $20,000 where we've been to something in the level of twenty dollars to $50,000 with an acquisitions reserve to go higher a few times a year. That's extraordinary movement for an institution our size. I would rather, as, as, much, as, as much as they... Um, as much as those market trends are, are, are very much in our face now, you know, we would certainly ignore the auction world at our, at our peril. But the truth is, I would rather give our money to Mags and Quaritch, to Yemenis and Christopher Edwards. But in fact, more on that later. Um, salaries and benefits. Everyone in this room is aware of what's happening at your own institutions. And some years are good and some years are not good. What we're trying to do is we're trying to endow more positions. We have a number of positions that we've endowed. We're trying to do more now. Because once you endow a position, that money can go to strengthen, create new positions or, or strengthen others. This is all part of this, this resources, collections, and people. There are other issues. The physical plant and the environment. Now, if you saw the Chronicle of Higher Education, this is um, from May 2008. This is at College Park. $620 million is the estimated cost of repairs needed at College Park. $620 million. This is in deferred maintenance, mostly. This is something that all our institutions, all our institutions face. I would be very nervous if I knew an institution had $620 million of physical plan and environmental expenses, I'd be very worried about what my acquisitions budget was going to be doing over the next, next five years. This is a very real thing in all our institutions. We are responsible for the physical plant and the environment that supports studying research as well as we are responsible for collection development. Deferred maintenance, renovations, new buildings, all of that takes money, a lot of money. There's the issue of infrastructure. And I mean everything from ergonomic chairs and system maintenance fees to data storage and T1 lines. At the Folger, and I'll, I'll use the Folger as an example because it's, it's what I'm most familiar with over the last 15 years. You can translate these numbers into your own, uh, your own experience. We're paying about $50,000 a year now in maintenance fees and another $50,000 a year is covered by a $1.2 million endowment to support a very basic infrastructure for IT. These are big numbers. Resources. Income from grant and gift-funded projects. I truly believe that it's how libraries distinguish themselves. It's how libraries keep up. What we do over and above the operating budget, what we conceive of, think of, articulate, sell, implement, bring, on to our own, bring into our own, own workflow is very, very important. But unfortunately, some of these projects can be nightmares. It's summer, August 2008. I go down into the stacks, into the manuscript uh, aisles. I can't even remember what I was looking for because I was so frightened when I saw this. The leaks on the wall had actually been there, been there a while. We added an addition to the library in uh, 1982. 
Within 10 years, we were starting to get mold in the stacks in the lowest level of the library. We really didn't do anything about it. I think we sort of hoped it would go away. Um, it's sort of a standard response. We had a consultant come in in 1995 and said, my friends, you have five to seven years before you have a real problem in this building. Let's look at the next image. That's, the, that's what I saw in August 2002. Pools of standing water in the manuscript aisles of the Folger Shakespeare Library. It was absolutely chilling. It put everything else on hold that we had planned for the next two and a half to three years. You see the problems that, that we were facing. It was within five to seven years. I don't know if it was our own fault or not, but we you know, like many institutions, we waited until the last minute to do anything about it. We waited until it was this, this situation. This was in August. Um, I actually took these pictures. At the September end of September board meeting, we had dozens of pictures out on the table for the board to see. And um, we spent the next two and a half years getting the money for the money for this project and trying to address the problem. The problem was, for one thing, 1,100 linear feet of cracks in the walls on two levels of the stack space. That is, the vault was designed with a below-grade uh, draining system that does not appear to be operating as intended. <laughs> Isn't that great? My favorite. You know, this is consultant's report. Hydraulic pressure is forcing water to enter through the foundation walls. They're just seeping in. This is the worst project of my career. It's one of the worst experiences of my life. We spent two and a half years on this, raising the money. We moved the collection seven times to keep it out of harm's way of construction. We had to waterproof the exterior walls of two levels of underground vault space, inside and out. I learned what sheeting and shoring means. We went down below grade, 22 feet. 22 feet is a lot of feet. 22 feet below grade in order to address the problems with the exterior walls of, of the underground, underground vaults. Then had to come inside and address those 1,100 linear feet of, of cracks and, and take care of that. When we finished this project, I felt that we could do anything. I felt that my colleagues and I could do anything. If we got through this, we moved 948 boxes off-site, we relocated, we shifted the collection seven times, we did not lose an hour of time in the reading room, and no one went overboard on me. <laughs> I, I knew I had great colleagues, but it was this experience that made me realize I had stellar colleagues. It was incredible that we could, uh, that we could get through this and, and get through this together. It was the nightmare of my career. This was the old conservation lab. Barbara's bringing a group to the, uh, to the Folger this Thursday, bringing her class to the Folger. Mercifully, you're not going to see this. This is the old conservation lab that was um, pretty sorry. Let's look at the next one, too. People were working on top of each other, equipment. We had, we had a conservation lab, my friends, that was um, operating in four different rooms on three different levels of the library. Conservators would take large items out of one door trying to get into the other with caterers' trucks going by in the hallway at 5 o'clock. The vault repair project delayed this. This is what Barbara's class is going to see on, on, on Thursday. Frank Maury, also an Eric Weinman endowed position now, our head of conservation there on the right, Renata Mesmer, the woman on the left, one of our interns, one of our Culpeper interns. It's a contiguous space. It's a beautiful space. We're very, very proud of it, and we're happy to, to show and to share it um, next week. This project was delayed two years because of the vault, vault repair project. So let me continue on this theme of, of grant-funded projects, grant and gift-funded projects. In the last 15 years, we've had 39 projects funded. And these are the categories. I tried to, I was going through the list. Uh, these are the categories, basically, that they, that they fall into cataloging conservation, building projects, microfilming, digitization, an audio archive, and the odd publication. We've had three in the last year. And we have, one is our Mellon Manuscript Cataloging Project. It was a, it was a three-year project funded by the Mellon Foundation to basically do our entire manuscript collection. Um, it's a very ambitious project. We have four wonderful catalogers who are working on the project all of whom are sitting in front of me and taking classes this week at Grobrook School. Uh, at the same time, we have an NEH-funded Picturing Shakespeare project doing 10,000 images and creating access to those. 
uh, digitizing uh, 10,000 images and creating the metadata that goes with them. And then a JISC NEH-funded project, a web-based Shakespeare Quarters archive, because of that. But I thought it would be interesting to show the sources of our funding. This is basically the 50 sources for 56 gifts that have come in over the last 15 years. It's interesting to see where the money's coming from. Government grants are very, very competitive. They're increasingly difficult to get. And I don't know if you've noticed that NEH's Preservation and Access Division has just, just went through another, another cut. It makes it hard to play. You can have the best ideas in the world and articulate very, very carefully and very closely on your, on your proposals, but you're up against a stiff competition. It's, they're very hard. We've had much better luck with private foundations and with individuals. The other two oddballs there, one is a Senate appropriation and the other is a Save, save Opera Sculpture. But if, if I had to plan a, a kind of a fundraising strategies for the next five years, five to seven years, and you can't ignore the government grants. You, ha- you, have to, you have to take advantage where you can, but our energy has been rewarded much more productive going at uh, private foundations and, and, and individuals. Okay, let's look at um, the next one, professional staffing. We're back to people. I want to spend a little bit of, little bit of time on this. I don't know if, Terry, I, you can see yourself quoted there. See, you don't think people listen to you, but I, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not true. This was when I was in library school at Columbia. And um, Terry was telling us, talking about career paths. And he said, you know, don't be afraid to go to the, if you want to work in New York, think about going to the provinces first. Um, it's certainly applied to my situation. I spent eight years as a university librarian in Canton, New York, where it gets to be 30 degrees below zero uh, before going to the, going to the Folger. This business of professional development, I mean, I think what happens here is one of the best things. It's, there's nothing like this. There's nothing like rare book school. It's one, certainly one of the best things that, that's going on and it's available to the rare book community. And we know we have conferences. We know we have workshops. We know we have skills courses. We know we, we have lots of things that are, that are going on that we try to get people out into and attending. It's very, 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 very important. The point I think that I, that I would like to make is that professional development isn't something that only happens outside the library. I think it's something that has to happen inside the building as well. And there's ways to do this, creating opportunities to work across departments. We've instituted something the last year um, called Research Leave. A number of institutions, colleagues here in the room, have sabbaticals. Sabbaticals typically come once every four years. and you have to be employed for three or four years before you're eligible for a sabbatical. We're trying to create a field of scholar librarians. These scholar librarians have wonderful credentials. They're in high demand. They have wonderful opportunities that are available to them for publication and for, and for, other, for other avenues, but they're, they're not getting the time to do this. Our research leave is four weeks available every year to be taken in one-week stints, in two-week stints, or all four at once. The requirement, these are, our, these are our, our PhDs, our curatorial staff, our scholar librarians. The re- requirement is to tell us what you want to do, and when you, got to the, when you come back, give us a paragraph or two on if you accomplished what you wanted to do. There are no other responsibilities. It's full paid, it's administrative leave, and it's to support, support your research. I have something that I also want to talk about, for lack of a better term, developing a kind of a farm system. I'm very interested in cultivating a next generation of professional librarians. And this, what I'm going to say is really a tribute to Nicholas Barker. I heard Nicholas speak at the Grolier Club some years ago. He was talking about his career at the Book Collector and musing on the sort of state of the state of the world today, where the next generation of collectors, the next generation of bibliophiles, the next generation of book people are going to come. And I thought about what Nick said for a long time. 
And he was absolutely right. Drawing our attention to this. My feeling is that it's not something we can wait and watch and, and see what happens. We have to be part of creating that next generation. We have to be supportive and encouraging. We have to open as many doors as we can to build that next wave, to groom non-exempt staff to consider library school, for example. We currently have eight Folger staff members who have just finished, are in, or are about to begin library school. By and large, these are people who came to the Folger to kind of sniff us out. They really weren't quite sure what they wanted to do with their lives. They really weren't quite sure that where the librarianship was going to be something that they wanted to go into. Creating dialogue within your building, creating opportunities, creating supporting internships for your people who are in library school is something that I think is very, very important because what happens is your best people end up being role models. I can do that. I can be like that. That, that curatorial position is one that, that appeals to me. I know I can do that. And opening up that conversation. We started an undergraduate program in the history of the book. Felcher has never let undergraduates into the building. <laughs> and we now have, uh, thanks to uh, a conversation with David Stamm and funding from the Delmas Foundation, we just finished a pilot year, and now we have five years of funding to continue, to continue that with uh, GW and with Georgetown. We also have money for interns in the budget right now. Library school students are looking for interns in our collections, in our libraries, in our institutions. They're looking for experience and we're looking for exposure. We have to have the door open. We have to get them in. We have to give them responsibilities and, and test them. Bill Weir at Ursus Books in New York City called me uh, about a week ago and we were talking about something completely different. And Bill asked exactly the same question that Nicholas did some years ago. He said, where are our book people going to come from? And I tried to, you know, as opposed to sort of wringing my hands, I told him, we have three curators at the Folger who are in their mid-30s. These people are in the pipeline. These people are out there. You all are out there. You are ready to move into fields and ready to support people who are moving into the field. It's a very, very important thing because we're about collections, but it's the people who make the collections accessible. It's the people, us, who are encouraging and supportive, and it's our responsibility. Uh, technology. The digital world, the digital environment, um, is something that is ours to manage. I think we can let it happen to us, or we can take a role and try to, try to shape it. The, the Fulcher in 1994 didn't have an online catalog. The Fulcher in 1994 had three people in the building who had only used, ever used an OPAC. It's been a very steep learning curve for our institution, probably steeper than, than and perhaps anyone who's sitting in the, in the room today. So when we have a project like Picturing Shakespeare to digitize and to create metadata for 10,000 images related to Shakespeare and, and, and theater and performance history, it's an enormous step forward for us of creating content-based collections. We develop criteria for selecting digital projects. We're being acutely aware of what digitization can't do and won't do for users. The web-based products that, that, that we're, we're contemplating um, include finding aids for scholars, but also lesson plans for, for high school students. Another thing that you may be facing, and I'd be happy to talk with you about this, we're getting more and more requests from readers to use dig digital cameras in the reading room, digital cameras in, in, in special collections and, and in research libraries. We, we sort of scratched our head and said no, and then started thinking about it, and then started talking to colleagues and other institutions. We're going to try to be more proactive in that, in that regard. I mean, that's something that's it's, it's, it's going to happen. But are we thinking about how e-books might be created to use, how they can be used alongside a physical object? About having an electronic surrogate with an underlying tool set that allows the reader to zoom and overlay text of multiple copies of a text. 
with transcriptions and marginalia and workspace for the user to make notes. What do you do when a book only opens 90 degrees? What do you do when a book is on your fragile or restricted list and it's being used in, 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 in the reading room? A surrogate of that physical text, a digital surrogate of that text is something that we can put into the hands of readers with a physical object on one side and electronic surrogate on the other and learning ways how they can interact and, su- and support each other. The issue of conservation. We've known for a long time the importance of copy-specific cataloging and its relevance to security and the identification of lost or missing copies. Copy-specific cataloging. Conservation databases can serve the same function, recording detailed, irrefutable evidence of treatments with before and after images and full documentation. It's another record of the physical object. The electronic databases are incredible now. Ebo and Echo, and I think, you know, we have to remember their limitations as well. This is from a Folger reader, you know, beginning of July. You know, his home institution, Ron Ebo, thank God, the copies aren't always legible. You know, there's the, the Google book search now is, is, um, is quite something too. It's a powerful tool, but how can we not be nervous? I don't know if you saw the, um, the Robert Darnton Library in, in the New Age and the New York Review of Books on June 12th, just about a month ago. I'm going to quote something from that, um, from that article by, um, by Darnton. Companies declined rapidly in the fast-changing environment of electronic technology. Google may disappear or be eclipsed by an even greater technology which could make its database as outdated and inaccessible as many of our old floppy disks and CD-ROMs. Electronic enterprises come and go. Research libraries last for centuries. Better to fortify them than to declare them obsolete because obsolescence is built into the electronic media, not into books. But this is an appreciative audience for that. So I think my, my point here is, is that the, you know, the, the technology is it's not only unavailable, but, it, but it's there to be embraced. And I think it's up to us to figure out how we're going to employ it, how we're going to use it, how we're going to support it, not only in web environments, but in the reading room. This is something new. JISCA stands for, it's an acronym, because of the Joint Information Systems Committee. It's in the UK. And this last year, last November, September, um, there was an announcement of a Digital Humanities Initiative out of NEH. It's a dual-funded project by NEH and JISC. It's for international collaborative digital initiatives. I'll say that again. International collaborative digital initiatives. It's a prompt for us to get outside of ourselves. Many of our digital projects focus exclusively on our collections, for our users, for our constituency, for our environment. What NEH and JISC tried to do is they tried to get us talking to other collections, get us talking to other colleagues, get us planning projects that, were more interna- that are international in, in, in scope. So what we did is we picked up a thread from 1999 talking to the British Library about a Shakespeare Quarto's archive. And last fall, we put together a proposal to NEH to fund the Shakespeare Quarto's archive, which is a collaboration a pre-1640 quarters, Shakespeare quarters, from the following institutions. The British Library, the Bodleian, the National Library of Scotland, University of Edinburgh, Folger Shakespeare Library, and the Huntington Library, the six leading repositories for the pre-1640, the SDC quarters. Those, are being filmed, those have been or are being filmed, and we're working with the Maryland Institute for Technology and the Humanities, 
to create a tool set which will make these freely available and accessible in a web environment. It's a one-year project, and we're working like crazy. At the end of it, this pilot year, we'll have all 32 copies of Hamlet up and available. We're creating an electronic Hinman collator. We're creating the ability to manipulate and, and, and explore text in ways that we've never been able to do before. At the end of this year, in fact, this September, we'll be looking for funding to go deeper into the canon. I'm mentioning this, I'm mentioning the JISC NEH-funded initiatives because this is one place where there is money to accomplish the work that needs to be done. We need to think beyond our own collections, think beyond ourselves to create resources that are international in scope. Those are the five projects that I have on the screen that were funded this year. This is the first year of the Digital Humanities Initiatives. Take a look at the guidelines and take a look about if this is a, something that you might be able to, to explore. I have to, give, I have to give real credit here too to, um, to colleagues at the British Library and the Bodleian. They were absolutely wonderful. We, we put our, our proposal together in six weeks and had it in for the, the deadline in, in November and were one of five projects that were awarded. These are the kinds of things that I think our conversations with colleagues can produce. To begin those conversations and see what can be done. This did not come easy. This is a conversation that was started in 1999. It's about people. It's about colleagues. It's about collaboration. It's about people listening. Politics. You know, I don't know... If there are 20 people in this room you know, who put together a list of, of sort of strategic necessities, if, if you would put this one in on your list. I thought about it, and I took it out, and I put it back. And I just spoke of the need to extend ourselves and think more broadly, building national and even international relationships. But you can only do this if you have a strong foundation underneath you. Have a local environment that is confident, talented, solid, and able to work collaboratively. The strength of your own environment creates the opportunities that are in front of you. I actually have lots to say about this, but I'm going <laughs> to... So the local issues, um, I think is really... Your quote from Bill Moffat there, at the bottom. You know, every environment that we work in, every environment that's represented here in the room is different. What works in one place may not work in another. What works in one place probably won't work in another. I think it's so important that when you go into a job as a department head, as a librarian or whatever, to listen before you leave, to see what's going on, to listen to your colleagues and try to understand the problems and the opportunities that are there. It's, it's very, very important. In terms of the politics and the, and the worlds outside, I would just stress again that colleagues and collegiality paved the way to building alliances. Okay. Leadership. It's another kind of hard topic, but it was one of actually one of the first things on, on my list. It's one of the most elusive things and difficult to describe. Perhaps the clearest thing I can say is staff know when they don't have it. Staff know when it's absent. And it's hard to define because leadership is not something you should see. It doesn't announce itself and it doesn't go on parade. You seldom see real leadership in action. You only recognize it after the fact and know it was a determining factor in dealing with a situation, a problem, or a project. What can we do to support, to cultivate the traits or qualities of leadership? Well, within the building, I try to think, I try to think what staff want from me. And I've come to understand that they don't want me as a friend, 
or someone to be with socially. They want me when there's a problem. They want me when, when there's someone, when they need someone objective to come in, to listen, to try and understand without having anything color whatever view may come about. I try to help department heads learn how to lead and make decisions by learning how to provide support and encouraging. What I'm giving you are all very personal things. Because if I, deci- I decided that if I was going to tackle this topic, as Terry wanted me to do, I had to speak from my own experience, and I had to speak of, in the way that, of the things that I, I believe in very strongly. In the profession, before I went to the Folger, I was at St. Lawrence University. This is part of the tale about going to the provinces before you, before you go back to the, to, to the city. I was a university librarian when I was 39 years old. That wouldn't have happened if I'd have stayed in New York. I went to St. Lawrence University. I was there for, Candace and I were there for eight really quite wonderful years. At St. Lawrence University, I had three direct reports. I'm sorry, I had eight direct reports. Three of those individuals are now library directors. The latest is Charlotte Slocum, who's a director, college librarian at, at Smith. I think we can make ripples. I think in small ways, by paying attention to these ideas, of, of leadership, of investing time in, into the talent that we have in, in our buildings, I think we can, we can make, a, make an effect. Decision-making. Um, I always have and do take searches very seriously. I think it's your test bed for teaching staff how to achieve consensus, how to work collaboratively, and arrive at a decision, not a power play. There is nothing we do that is more important than the people we hire, people who will enhance library operations and contribute to a culture. The search process deserves all the time, effort, and discussion we can give to it. Properly run searches can teach staff a good deal about decision making. And at the end of the search, the candidate that you want is someone who you want to really want you. Searches are reciprocal evaluations. The candidate has to decide whether that person wants to be in your library or not, as much as you're deciding whether you want that person for a particular job or assignment. Working with trustees, I mentioned the relationship with Paul Ruxner, chairman of the board. Other constituencies where leadership, other ways leadership can be, can be practiced, other examples. I think participating in the development of bibliographic standards, for example, I'm very, very happy and proud the role that my colleagues have played and are playing in that regard. Okay. Challenges. I don't know if any of you went to the 2007 RLG Programs Annual Meeting. Um, We heard a recurring theme of the burden of legacy collections and increasing costs of maintaining book warehouses. These are the things that worry me. This kind of language worries me. I've always thought that being associated with a legacy collection was a privilege, not a burden. And when I walked through the stacks of the Folger, I'd never, ever felt like I was in a warehouse. Yes, mark-based cataloging and high-quality digitization are expensive, but they are necessary, and they are worth it. Worth the investment, worth the staff time, worth the effort. When I hear a national agenda that advocates harmonizing digitization, whatever that means, and collection triage to determine the appropriate level of bibliographic description, I feel like a dinosaur. What about sticking with and enhancing standards that work, including MARC and EAD-based description, authority control, and high-quality digitization, especially given the documented data loss that occurred with first-generation digital projects in the 1990s? Remember that? Just to pick up on this theme, I can't tell you how happy I am that Folger staff were involved in producing the latest DCRMB, 
and that our curators are currently participating members in creating similar guidelines for manuscripts and graphic materials. These kind of tools will go a long way in helping all of us produce uniform descriptions and appropriate access points to underutilized material in our book warehouses. The focus of OCLC and the national agenda worries me. I recognize that places like the Folger are not among the key audiences for things like the Shared Print Project. And it is clear that the problems faced by ARLs and other campus libraries are very real. But where in the mix, I ask, is the agenda relevant to special collections and smaller institutions devoted to primary research material and the advanced study of the physical object? I have not, until recently, until last month, seen much in the OCLC work agenda that even concerns special collections and rare book libraries. Rare book libraries. And when the former president of RLG called for a dramatic and radical change a year ago, and a colleague of his called for dismantling the medieval guild of the research institution, I felt pretty odd of it. Frankly, I think the medieval guild community is in dire need of an update of the 1995 MLA report on the significance of primary records. My concern has been that the RLG-OCLC transition or buyout, or whatever you want to call it. My concern has been that the agenda of special collections and rare book libraries has not been part of the national agenda, not the national agenda that is being shaped in Dublin, Ohio. Will that change? I don't know. Last month, the same RLG programs people who talked about the burden of legacy collections a year ago sponsored a symposium in Philadelphia on the impact of digitizing special collections on teaching and research. Is this a carrot from the OCLC research or a conversation that will be developed? I credit Jim Kuhn, the head of collection information services at the Folger, for speaking up after the 2007 RLG programs meeting and give great credit to Marilee Prophet and Jennifer Schaffner at OCLC for listening. I'm hopeful but worried on that front. Now, competing in the auction rooms, um, as Alice knows, I was invited to go to Chicago to participate in a Newberry Caxton Club symposium on the book in April 2008. Um, I couldn't because I was down with the flu for nine days. So if you'll indulge me, I'd like to respond to one of the questions which came up at that, at that point. One of the morning papers was by Francis Walgren Dealers going, going, gone. Has the auction house replaced the antiquarian dealer? I repeat that. Has the auction house replaced the antiquarian dealer? My answer is no. With due respect, who among us is rushing to pay 20 to 25 percent buyer's fees? If anything, it looks to me like the big houses are going to go out of the book business in the coming decade. Auctions houses make their money in the fine art market, not selling our books. More on this. In 2000, William Reese estimated that rare book sales internationally came to about $500 million a year. A few weeks ago, I asked Bill what he thought the figure was now. He guessed $600 million, about the same price for College Park to do their yeah. deferred maintenance. Yeah. Bill gets $600 million a year. This is revenue sales internationally. He said it's terribly com- complicated to estimate. So I'll, I'll say $600 million, but I'm more conscious than ever that I'm just guessing. That's okay. Whether Bill is exactly right, he's probably ballpark. And my point is, that's peanuts in the art market. How many Impressionist paintings will $600 million buy? Five? Two? Three, there's a shift coming in the auction world, a shift away from books and an emphasis on art. In 1974, institutional buying accounted for 40% of rare book sales worldwide. In 2000, institutional buying accounted for 15%. Today, I don't have a figure, but it must be under 10%. What will change that? What will make us, our institutions, our libraries more competitive? 
One of our challenges is the competition for resources. This is a very real thing in the worlds that we live in. Not having enough money for acquisitions is the norm just about everywhere. There is so much going on at our respective institutions and it all requires money. That's why I showed you pools of standing water at the Folger. Librarians need to be very persuasive and very articulate in the arena of budget management. And they need to have alternatives to get what they need, which is why I'm stressing the grants and gifts funded projects and where that money lies. Going public. One major early library in New York now wants to be called a museum. And the M word is used more than I, for one, want to hear. I arrived to work one morning to see a huge banner at the Folger at the research entrance announcing museum shop. Museum shop. But we're a library. The word library is in marble in the front of the building. (laughs) When did we become a museum? And why the hell is that banner flying over the research entrance of the library? (laughs) It ain't there now. (laughs) What is it that makes us pander to public perception, makes us want to be liked by 12-year-olds, makes us worry excessively about public image, makes us want to provide something for everyone, and spend $75,000 on branding that produces a logo in four different type fonts on three lines of text. What's wrong with being a world-class research library? What's wrong with being a special collection? What's wrong with being a research library with a profile that includes public programs and outreach? It's the collection that is the basis of our international reputation. It's our collections that define who we are. The collection. The library's collection. Working with collectors. For me, this has been one of the most deeply gratifying aspects of my work at the Folger. So I end not with a down note, but with words of praise for Stephen Ennis and his colleagues at Emory University who worked years to acquire the Raymond Donowski Poetry Collection. It's fabulous. What a coup, what a great thing for the Robert Woodruff Library and for humanities research. At Emory, There is no excuse now for faculty not to have students handling primary resources in the study of 20th century poetry. What a burden for the library? No. What a privilege. Thank you very much. sins, but pandering to 12-year-olds is not one of them. (laughs) Please join our speaker for the reception that follows immediately in the first floor Alderman Library Staff Lounge.